Greetings to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Sunday School Podcast for the fifth Sunday after the Epiphany. That Sunday is February 5th, 2023. And today we are looking at the uh, next part of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. Last week, we heard Jesus begin the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. And if you remember, the Beatitudes were divided into two parts. First off, Jesus talked about being gathered into the kingdom of heaven. So the poor in spirit, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they are gathered into the kingdom because the king has come to gather them in. The next five Beatitudes then talked about what it was like or what it is like to be part of the kingdom of heaven. You're merciful, you're pure in heart, um, and then you also face suffering among other things. And so in the Beatitudes, then you have, um, you have the blessing of being brought into the kingdom of God and the blessing of living in the kingdom of God. And now that his hearers are gathered in, And part of the kingdom of God in the next few verses, verses 13 through 20, Jesus gives them a a calling and an identity. And he bridges from the Beatitudes to this section with the final Beatitude where he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So if you remember, the Beatitudes are directed to people in the third person. Blessed are those who... And the final one is, blessed are you. And part of that is that Jesus is probably speaking directly to his his inner circle of disciples who will, in fact, suffer and be persecuted for proclaiming his kingdom. But that blessed are you also takes us into the second person of these verses, verses 13 through 20, because Jesus goes on to say, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So you are the salt of the earth, says Jesus, speaking to his hearers. He doesn't say you partake of the salt of the earth, but you are the salt of the earth. In other words, the Torah is not the salt of the earth, nor is the temple or the nation of Israel or any group within the nation of Israel. But those who are in the kingdom of God, you are the salt of the earth. Now, please note when Jesus says this, they are not the salt of the earth because of how well they will do as salt. They are the salt of the earth because Jesus has blessed them in the Beatitudes and brought them into his kingdom already. 
Now, there is the danger of falling away from Christ, of leaving the kingdom. That would be salt losing its taste, so to speak. And so here Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Now, why does Jesus use salt? You can probably find a ton of sermons that talk about how salt seasons things, how salt preserves things, how salt does this, how salt does that. And then this preacher says, go and season the world and preserve it or whatever. Um, What exactly salt does specifically is not important. What matters is that salt has a use in this world. And likewise, Christ's people have a use and an effect on the earth. And so Jesus is saying, you are called to be salt. You have an identity as my people, and I will use you for my purposes. Now, it strikes some that that Jesus says, what if salt loses its saltiness? Because salt can't lose its saltiness. But Jesus is posing a hypothetical. If salt could use its saltiness, it would be useless. It would have no use whatsoever. Likewise, Christians who do not remain in Christ, who have no Christian witness, they're of not much use in the kingdom. So, you are salt, says Jesus. You have a, an identity, you have a calling, and I have a purpose for you. In verse 14, then he says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, or shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, in the Gospel of John, Jesus is called the light of the world. He is the light that darkness cannot overcome in John chapter 1. Also, Jesus is called light in in this Gospel, Matthew chapter 4, where he fulfills the prophecy, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And throughout Scripture, evil is associated with darkness, light with the kingdom of God. Jesus brings light as the light of the world. He enlightens people with his gifts. And now he says to his people, now enlightened, you are the light of the world. And he says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. In fact, a city on a hill is is lit up. At night, it's not invisible. So, an, a uh, a hidden city on a hill is 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 it's an unding. It doesn't make sense. Likewise, says Jesus, since you are called to be my people, people who are not shining light, who are not doing good works, that doesn't make sense in the kingdom either. Likewise, if people light a lamp, they don't hide it under a basket, and so. By shining light, by by shining good works, you, you give a good Christian witness. 
if you fail to show good works to others, you're not giving a good Christian witness, and that doesn't make sense. So really, with with this portion of this reading, Jesus makes two points. First off, good works follow and accompany faith. If you're gathered into the kingdom, Christ has a purpose for you. You're salt of the earth. And part of that purpose is to do good works. The one who has faith does good works. Because if you're not doing good works, you're doing bad works. And that destroys faith. But the one who is faithful is doing good works because that's what faith wants to do. What's the purpose of these good works? Not to point to the individual Christian who's doing them, but to glorify God in heaven. So between Jesus saying, you are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world, he's given his people a calling, an identity, and and, and a purpose. All right? In other words, he's saying that that being brought into the kingdom of God, being given the gift of faith, that should have a remarkable difference in the life of the Christian. We should rejoice in who we are, and we should rejoice to do good works. Now, in the second portion of our gospel reading, verses 17 through 20, Jesus moves on to answer a couple of other questions. One is, how does he, how does Jesus relate to the Old Testament? And then the second question is, how are his disciples to regard the Old Testament? So the first question, how does Jesus relate to the Old Testament? Jesus answers in verses 17 and 18, where he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So, what is Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament law? He declares that he has not come to abolish the law or the prophets. In other words, he has not come to abolish the Old Testament He's come to fulfill the Old Testament. In other words, were there are laws given by God in the Old Testament, requirements for his people, requirements that his people have failed to do? Jesus has come to fulfill those laws on behalf of God's people so that he can take away their sins and credit them with his righteous obedience. And where there are Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, Jesus has come to fulfill them, to keep them, to demonstrate that he is the Messiah. And in keeping those prophecies, then, he goes to the cross and wins salvation for the world so that all who believe in him might be saved. So far from setting the Old Testament aside... And far from merely repeating the law and the prophets and saying these things still apply, Jesus fulfills them. He lives them out, both keeping the law and fulfilling gospel prophecy 
for our salvation. He then says, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Even today, there's the idea among some that Jesus did abolish the law. This is an idea called antinomianism. Um, Nomianism comes from the Greek word nomos, which means law. The idea of antinomianism teaches that sin doesn't matter anymore because Christ fulfilled the law and took our sins away, so we can do whatever we want. Here Jesus says, no, I haven't abolished the law. I haven't gotten rid of it. The law still holds and you should keep it. But where you don't keep it, where the law shows your sin, then turn to me and trust in me because I have kept the law for you and I have fulfilled God's promises and I have won your salvation dying for your sin. Jesus says that the law remains. In fact, he says not one iota, not one dot of the law will pass away. That's like saying in all the Old Testament, not one dot will disappear from a a lowercase i and not one cross will disappear from a lowercase t. Um, Every last bit of the law will not pass away until heaven and earth pass away. In other words, the word of the Lord remains forever. But then he also says that none of it will pass away until all is accomplished. So while the word of the Lord remains forever, the use of the law will change slightly. When all is accomplished, which is at the cross, when Jesus says, it is finished. So Jesus fulfills the Old Testament on the cross. He fulfills the law by his perfect obedience. He fulfills the curse of sin, the curse of the law, by his death on the cross. And he fulfills God's promise of a Savior by his death for our sins. Because of all that, the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, takes on a new light. Jesus will send the disciples out at the end of Matthew to teach all that He has commanded. We've talked about this before with with Levitical law in the Old Testament, how all of that ceremonial law pointed to Jesus. Laws about, say, tent mildew and unclean foods and working on the Sabbath. All of that pointed to Jesus and the Israelites of old had to keep those laws. Now that our salvation is accomplished in Christ's death and resurrection, those laws remain, but for a different purpose. They remain so we can see how they pointed to Jesus and confirm that he is the Messiah. Because now our salvation is is accomplished at the cross. Um, the, The laws that still apply to us, as we've talked about before, the laws that we have to obey, are those that Jesus reinstates from the Old Testament or institutes himself in the New Testament. None of the Old Testament passes away. We're still to treasure all of it. 
but some of it now has the use of pointing to Christ, while other parts Jesus says we still, we still need to obey. So that is Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament. He fulfills the law. He accomplishes what the scriptures said the Messiah would do. And he sends out then his his disciples to proclaim um, this new good news that he has come and died and risen again. Then we have the second question. How are his disciples to regard the Old Testament, the law and the prophets? And Jesus says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and scribes, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So first off, how should the disciples regard the Old Testament? They should treasure it. Keep the commandments that Jesus reinstates and teach others to do the same. If they abandon God's word, then they'll likely abandon Christ, and so they are lost. If they relax these commandments, then Jesus says they're, they're still in the kingdom, but they're the least in the kingdom. To be great in the kingdom is to do and teach these commandments, this, this word of God. And thanks be to God that Jesus teaches and keeps these commandments perfectly on our behalf and brings us in by his grace. For Jesus finishes by saying, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees believe that they are righteous, but they believe they're righteous by their own works, by by keeping the law as well as they could. Jesus says, if you're going to get to heaven, you have to keep the law better than the scribes and the Pharisees have, and they're the ones who are trying the hardest, it seems, to do so. That makes getting into heaven by keeping the law impossible. But remember what ground Jesus has already covered in the Sermon on the Mount so far. He began by announcing that he brings people into his kingdom and so they are blessed. He's given them their identity as salt and light, his people who are doing good works. And their good works they are to do are by keeping the commandments. Can they keep the commandments well enough to enter the kingdom of heaven by their works? They can't. However, keep in mind that Jesus has already told them that they're already in the kingdom of heaven because he has brought them in. Therefore, as... They show mercy because God has been merciful to them already. As good works follow faith, Jesus says, don't count on your righteousness to get you into heaven, 
But now that you're in the kingdom of heaven, act righteously. And because you fail, trust in the righteousness of Christ. You can't be self-righteous. You can't justify yourself. But you can trust in Christ's righteousness for you and rejoice that you're forgiven for when you fail to keep his law. All right, with that, a quick look then at the Old Testament reading from Isaiah chapter 58, verses 3 through 9a. This is a great look at the self-righteous trying to save themselves and how they are far from righteous and the Lord's response to them. And this text begins with the self-righteous complaining that they're, they're trying hard to impress God with their, their hard work of fasting, and they're, they're complaining that God does not appear to be impressed. Verse 3 begins, Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? So the self-righteous are perplexed. They're working hard at being self-righteous and they seem to have no respect from God. And the Lord answers, Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? So this is, this is kind of the image that, that the Lord pictures for us here, the self-righteous want to impress God by fasting. Now, fasting, refraining from, say, food and drink, is a sign of penitence, is a sign of humility. It's a, a confession. We have done wrong. We don't deserve God's help. We humble ourselves. We seek to serve God. And we seek to serve those around us. That's what fasting should be. The Lord responds as self-righteous. That's not what you have made fasting to be. Because rather than humble and penitent, instead you're, you're hangry. You're hungry and you're mad. And so as you put on this show of putting on a fast... You're trying to seek your own pleasure. You're trying to make your fast easier by maybe, maybe sneaking some treats. Meanwhile, you're oppressing your workers because you're angry. You have to fast, and so you might be um, hitting them with a fist. You might be fighting each other. And so they're trying to put on this pious display of fasting, and they're total grouches who aren't penitent, who aren't serving others, but rather are abusing others. When they bow down their head like a reed, when they spread sackcloth and ashes around, it's not sincere. And so the Lord has no respect for their fast. Then in the second part of Isaiah 58, 3-9a, we have God's response, his definition of what a fast should be. 
Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer You will cry, and he will say, Here I am. So in contrast to the the self-righteous, like the scribes and the Pharisees in in the times of the Gospels, unlike the self-righteous who put on a show of fasting and are just angry and abusive about it, the Lord says that a true fast is, is done humbly, meekly, and in service to others. So the one who fasts in a humble, God-pleasing way is using the time of fasting to loose the bonds of wickedness, to help the oppressed go free, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked. A true fast is done in humble service to God and to neighbor. That's the sort of fast that God recognizes Because those works are done by faith. So in contrast to, say, the scribes and the Pharisees who say, we will impress God by our good works, the one who is fasting in a God-pleasing way says, because God has, has humbled himself to save me, I will now humble myself to serve others. Now, you and I can never fast well enough to do it perfectly. And that's why we thank God that Jesus humbled himself and fasted and served us finally by going to the cross to die for our sins. Now brought into his kingdom... We can live humbly in a God-pleasing way. Now brought into his kingdom, we can be the salt and light who serve others, who feed the hungry, who help the poor. But our good works stem not from our attempts to earn our way into the kingdom. Our good and God-pleasing works stem from the, the joyful truth that God has already brought us into his kingdom for the sake of Christ. God does not respond to our prayers because of our works, like the self-righteous want. God responds to our prayers because of our faith. And our faith is a gift of God because Christ has died to redeem us and given us faith to believe in him. So, rejoice, my friends, to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, because both of those mean that you're among Christ's holy people. Both of those mean he's brought you into his kingdom. Both of those mean that you have eternal life because his word endures forever. 
And so blessed are you. All right, that's a quick and hopefully helpful look at this next section of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 13 through 20. God grant you every good gift as you meditate upon Christ's words more. God grant you every blessing until we speak again. And until then, the Lord order your days and your deeds in his peace. Amen.